0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate you so, so much. Today's episode is with Mike McCarg. Mike is a science expert. He has a podcast called Cozy Robot Show. He has worked with companies like Marvel, Apple, and the New York Times, and he talks a lot about empathy and skepticism. And on this episode, Whoa, we cover all kinds of territory, the science of empathy, what's inside of us when we actually feel something, and we touch on emotional optimism, my favorite topic. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed speaking with this guy. He's an exceptional human. Thank you. Thank you. Mike McCarg, it's amazing to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It is my honor. Uh, Thanks for letting me be here.
0: Yeah. Um, Really quick, before we even get started, I see two kind of soldier arms, or what what are those? They're mitts?
1: Those are um, Infinity Gauntlets from um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and one of the things I do is uh, help um, large-scale media properties tell better stories through science accuracy, so I'm really excited to have uh, been a science advisor on multiple projects in phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, including the recently released WandaVision. That is so inc- those are a call out to uh, to that work.
0: That is incredible. My God, that's right. I absolutely now see, I see it. You know, it's the mm-hmm. Transformers arms and whatnot.
1: And then Thor, Thor's hammer is in between them, so. Yeah,
0: that is <laughs> so, so cool. Speaking of Thor's hammer, do you do you like mythology? Or are you a, someone that you know is is into just you know the old the the, uh, the Greeks, the Romans?
1: I uh, casually, I think my main relationship to mythology is as fodder for Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, of which I participate in two. <laughs> so <laughs> often, when you're creating uh, a fictional pantheon, it's nice to have some actual pantheons to use for inspiration. So that's that's my relationship, and I I also I do have a particular interest in the psychobiology of spirituality. That's kind of a huge part of my life and work, and so I am interested in how uh, mythological understandings and pantheonic understandings of spiritual traditions how that shape cultures and help shape psychologies in a way that might be you know measurably or markedly different than. More contemporary approaches to understanding the divine. So that's also something that interests me.
0: Okay. Oh, we've got to, we've got to go there. Psychobiology of mythology. Is that what you said? I did. Yeah. Okay. The psycho. So we're talking psychology, biology. What's that part of mythology? I understand the psychology. Well,
1: yeah. uh, the, The kind of the way I view psychology and biology is they're not actually divisible. These are two interconnected, interrelated things. So uh, I have a particular passion for brain science, and when I started studying that more deeply, I realized you can't really conceptualize the brain without the mind. But then, when I turned around and tried to look at the at the psycho- psychological groundings of a human behavior, those don't make sense unless you look at the brain. And we're seeing that more and more in contemporary psychology and in research in psychological sciences, a collaboration between uh, medical sciences, brain-based sciences, particularly brain imaging, and new models in human psychology. And so the notion is our thoughts and feelings come from our bodies and shape our bodies, but our bodies also shape our thoughts and feelings. Those are an interconnected system. So when I think about the impact of a given spiritual belief system, it impacts what? Uh, Culture It impacts the society, but those things are just collections of people, and what it impacts in people is this dynamic system of a body and a mind, of intuition and cognition and feeling that coalesce into these wonderful, miraculous things that we call people. And so when we think about mythology, um, there was almost a more participatory and play-like aspect to uh mythological faith traditions they understood on some level that they were telling stories but storytelling uh, it didn't have the same separation from how uh, humans processed reality that we are have been trending toward in modern times although I might say we've been regressing to old habits more recently. Um, and so I'm just very interested in the way there was this, collective participatory process in creating what we might call canon they were more comfortable having alternating canon or conflicting stories there wasn't a notion of creating a single cohesive theology or religious tradition uh in the ways that uh kind of the modern uh world faiths like uh islam or judaism or christianity uh, are quite obsessed with although judaism perhaps less than the other two they uh, they have a seem to have a lot more comfort with um, different schools of thought uh, coexisting and existing in conversation together. There's less of a, uh, I might dare say, a supremacist undertone to that faith.
0: Wow! <laughs> I'm like, where do we even dive in? I'm, I want to go like Kabbalah with you. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to go Joseph Campbell with you. I mean, mm-hmm. I want to go many, many places. Um, thank, you for, for, thank you for the explanation. It makes so much sense when you actually pulled it apart and we are all these, I don't even want to oversimplify it. I mean, uh, one system needs the other system needs the other system needs the other. And again and again and again, that's right does mm-hmm. just as history has repeated itself and,
2: mm-hmm.
0: again, and again and again and our biology does as well. Um, I would I would love to actually go back in time. Mm-hmm. I would love to ask you what you were like as a kid. And, you know, knowing that you have a love of the sciences, the uh, history, it sounds like, uh, uh, biology, the body, the mind, the spirit. What was Mike like as a kid? What were you curious about?
1: Oh, my gosh, I was a contradiction in terms. Okay. Uh, I was a science-loving a uh, computer pioneering, undiagnosed autistic, evangelical Christian. <laughs> so, whoa! I mean, the fact that I was like really into the sciences and a Southern Baptist evangelical who believed in young earth creationism was just like this. I mean, well, this ball of wax that took me into my 40s to unravel.
0: <laughs> say, what what did they do with you? And we can say that another 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 episode, but sure. under, understood. So, yeah, a ball of well, it sounds like I would translate it as in like a ball of wonder, but I I know that that's probably not what was told to you.
1: not no, it was not told to me and not how I understood it for a long time. Um, it, you know, um I like to think of kind of our fundamentalist religious traditions as a cast on a leg. Mm -hmm. So like when you're doing identity formation or you're recovering from trauma or you're recovering from patterns of uh, compulsion or addiction, fundamentalist religion can play uh, in research this kind of role in people's recovery, like a cast on a broken leg. But if we wear a cast too long, it starts to confine and atrophy the muscles underneath it. And I think that my process as a person has been learning to like put weight on a leg that was in a cast much, much too long. Much too long,
0: yeah, I understand. I do, and I, I think you 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 hit it on the head, which is or the nail on the head, uh, that confinement does work when you're trying to get clean and sober, or you're right. trying to figure out like the the first steps of ptsd and and
2: what you mm-hmm.
0: do with yourself but it sure it certainly does it locks you in and it's hard mm-hmm. to be, i think that will do you get yeah so glad you found it glad you put mm-hmm. weight on that for sure
1: <laughs> <laughs> me too
0: you know the science part is interesting because does it how does a kid become curious about science If science isn't in the house, in school, friends, you know, what is that? I wonder what that, and then more of a question about you, but more of a question. I I have a two and a half year old, so I am curious
1: (laughs) too. For me, it was, um, we didn't know it. I didn't get diagnosed even with a learning disability until late high school, but I just had trouble. I had trouble making friends in school. I really didn't have any friends in elementary school. And I had trouble learning. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. Um, And, uh, you know, they put me in these classes, which were kind of like a trial basis that I needed to go into a remedial or even a slow learning, which was the language in the 80s uh, curriculum. And, um, And then based on how old I am, like personal computers kind of came out when I was in grade school, early grade school. And so they just put a couple of them in a room at the school and then the teachers would kind of walk in superstitiously at these strange machines and just put the kids in the chair in front of it and be like, this is a floppy disk. Have fun. And then you would just spend a little time in the room. And, uh, you know, I have great difficulty with dexterity. So handwriting is phenomenally difficult for me. When I realized you could press a button and a letter would appear on screen. Oh, the relief I felt. So I taught myself to program in the first two weeks. So there was this immediate connection. And I went to teaching the teachers how to use the computers very quickly uh, to like, By the time I was in like sixth grade designing campus-wide networks before that was a thing and making visits as a student to the district office to help wire up networking for the administrators. (laughs) And uh, it just made sense to me. And I wanted to learn everything I could learn about computers. And so I started studying programming. I started studying microprocessor design. And as I would dig deeper and deeper, I didn't know I was autistic until I was an adult. But This is kind of that autistic hyper-focus. I wanted to know literally everything there was to know about how computers works, which leads you to what? Physics, right? If you really want to know what's happening in a computer, you have to understand electricity, electronics, and then ultimately physics. And then I started thinking, well, if computers are based on physics, what are animals based on? Biology. And I started to try to build this systematic understanding of how the world works. And uh, science just was a really convenient way to, mm-hmm. for me, to get a sense of control in a life that felt uncontrollable.
0: Yeah, I hear you. It was like a um, a lifeline. Sounds like almost mm-hmm. you know, at a, at a very young age, not even knowing that you needed one, maybe consciously, but subconsciously. You know, I and I'm actually the the opposite, uh, dyslexic. Mm-hmm. My. Um, my gift has always been intuitive
2: mm-hmm. and uh, just
0: uh, like high, high EQ. But you know, you brought up physics, and I and I said to myself, "Oh shit, where's Mike going to go with this?" Because I I didn't do physics. Yeah, I didn't do biology. Wasn't no, no, no. That's where like, you know, I, I was tutored in academics starting I think at age seven or so mm-hmm. when I started to mix the numbers up and whatnot. So and then spa- spatial relations is my real i i I stump out like i Mm -hmm. i don't even know quite frankly you know the yeah anything mechanics you know what it is my if i if you put me in a home depot i get really depressed or i get really depressed because a i don't know it's the connection of that piece of wood and that pipe what i can make with those things doesn't i don't see what i can make but if you put me into a West Elm or you, you know, we walked into the IKEA showroom and I said to you, I really love that bookcase. Then mm-hmm. you could say to me, Claude, let's go to Lowe's and I'll show you what to buy for that bookcase. Still will take me a while. It's just, you know what I mean? It's we are you and I are in many ways on the opposite ends of how our brains developed and probably work in many ways, which is which is fascinating to me too.
1: I'm hearing that you, your brain is oriented toward a very holistic perception of reality, which we typically associate with the right hemisphere of the brain more than the left. Got that right. And I have a more traditionally reductive approach to reality. Let's take it apart into little pieces, mm-hmm. which we traditionally ascribe to more of a less left hemispherical approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, my understanding of of biology and child development is that way you and I got there was a combination of like genetic propensities that were there at the very earliest moments of our lives and then our peers and our family systems and our the school system itself and education curriculum begin to reinforce some patterns and penalize others and these miraculous systems that are our bodies adapted and led us to that place where you know Uh, we had this kind of fundamentally dissimilar way of relating to reality. What excites me about people is I've just met you, but we seem to get along really well. We seem to be excited to learn from each other. And what excites me about people is when we can learn that we had a way of seeing the world that helps us survive, and we had a way of the world that has advantages for us, but it also has disadvantages. In some way, um, it is easier to see all of the world when we share and receive the perspectives of others Mm -hmm. and the tools they've used to understand reality. And when we have that kind of sense of intellectual humility, uh, it opens up the opportunity for us to grow in a way that when we are self-assured that our way is the best way, and we become incurious, really limits our ability to grow and, and, and appreciate life in new and wonderful ways.
0: Amen. To that and i go back to the idea what you just said i go back to the cast on the leg and the fundamentalism of mm-hmm. like hey it's my way and i'll suck out all the oxygen just because i could i can i can suck it out i'm the smartest you know i always say right. that to people uh certainly you know at vayner anywhere that i am with uh, amongst a lot of people especially you know new joiners
2: mm.
0: students, you know, who's the smartest person in the room? And they all look around, they're in the room or they look on Zoom and they're like, I don't know. I'm like, the room is the smartest person in the room. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like, it's the sum of the parts there is. If if Jack and Jill and Bob and Sue and, you know, Mike and Claude weren't in this room, it wouldn't be as smart. Yeah. It wouldn't be as rich. It wouldn't Mm -hmm. be as promising.
1: Mm hmm Mm hmm You know? Oh, gosh. I love that perspective. Wow,
0: we speak different and same languages. I I love that. I mean, you can see my like my smile is like genuine. I have chills. Mm -hmm. I, I Mm -hmm. and one of the things you just hit on, and you said, I mean, you said intellectual humility, which is just like ding 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 ding, and where I was going, where I went in my head was that next level of humility as the as the soil right as the bedrock and then you can put the empathy on top of that the generosity on top of that the kindness the compassion all those other incredible human skills that some of us have and some of us are taught or some of us mm-hmm. are interested in you know i'd love to know i'd actually uh, talking about empathy i'd love to know your thoughts about your thoughts on empathy and i mean that's a i know that's a vague Hey, what are your thoughts on empathy? But, you
1: know, can empathy be taught? What is empathy? Empathy is, in my mind, the ability to be in touch and aware of our own emotions and to be aware that other people have their own emotions as well. Right? That's what empathy is. Mm -hmm. It's not even we don't specifically know what feeling they're having. But we know we have a a feeling, and in some way, our feelings are shaped by our experience with another person. And we're aware that person has their own emotional life. (laughs) And um, I dare say one of the greatest challenges of the last four or five years is a massive collapse in an awareness and practice of empathy in people's lives. But uh, empathy alone. Um, can actually lead us to some dangerous places, right? Because if we're empathetic, let's go for an extreme example, right? You could be empathetic to uh, a serial killer. That serial killer might have a trauma background. Yeah. And that might be a really empathetic story. But if our empathy caused us to dismiss or um, ignore the harm a serial killer did to the serial killer's victims, then that empathy is actually incomplete. And so empathy introduces a real potential for cognitive dissonance in our lives because we're empathetic for the trial a serial killer had and we're empathetic for someone who was killed by a serial killer and the family that was affected. Now our empathy is giving us all this confusing information and what we know about the human animal we don't like confusing and conflicting information. Our brains want to figure out how to get rid of that as fast as possible. So I'm the host of a weekly program called The Cozy Robot Show. Yes. And we say the point of that show is to explore empathetic skepticism. What? Why would we put those two words together? Well, empathy is absent in a lot of skeptical people who think critically, who are aware of uh the conflicting value systems in our world who are aware of some of the harm that happens in the systems of our society um but they they think so critically they kind of forget that human emotion is actually not a but the primary motivator for human action and there are people who are very empathetic and but those people may maybe don't have great information literacy literacy skills or don't have the um, They they have a compassion fatigue that exhausts them, so they don't have the resources left to deal with the information coming from their empathy. So we try to combine those things together. How do we live and move in the world in a way we're aware of our own feelings and we're aware of the feelings of others, and we're really in touch with our emotional intuitive core and We match that with all the tremendous giftedness of our cognitive mind, not having our thoughts stand superior over our feelings, but having thoughts and feelings work as peers, frankly, as evolution kind of primed us to be able to do to maximize our ability to live lives of satisfaction and contentment while working together towards a world that's kind of just and fair to everyone. And I think when you combine those two things together, that framing unlocks a lot. It means when we're having really challenging conversations about real issues of importance in our society that are truly polarizing, where there are deep wells of disagreement, we may have to lean into what? Our empathy to act as a bridge to make people feel safe and heard enough to then have a skeptical, critical thinking Information-informed discussion about what kind of solutions we can take toward the underlying problem. But if we ignore the feelings, they're there, and we get just get stuck shouting over each other. But if we only focus on the feelings, then we don't move towards pragmatic solutions that what expand our empathy, being aware that lots of people are impacted by any given issue in our culture.
0: Wow. So... Thank you so much. You know, um, I'm thinking about our differences, which we've already talked about, our similarities and our differences. Mm -hmm. And you said so many profound things and and in very simple form. And I need to show you what I have here. I can't wait. You You can't make it any simpler than this. Thinking leads to action. I know how I think. How do I then act? Mm-hmm. literally it's the it, it's breaking it down. I mean, I have it literally on my board here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you talked about, I mean, one of the things that you said that really, really struck me, you you said, I, I'm going to say it in Claude's way. So empath, extremely right-brained. Mm-hmm. It's just what it, it came natural. My parents used to say to me in, in, in a loving way, Hey, Claude, you think way too much with your heart. You have Mm. to, you know, from about age 13 on, you think too much with your heart, you think too much with your heart. And what that did for me, again, they didn't mean any harm is like, I was broken because I Mm. couldn't get this other side, you know, the, the analytical side, the side that we just spoke about, couldn't get that. And it wasn't until, um, I left school after my sophomore year of college wasn't the right thing for me I was going nowhere fast I was making some bad decisions and as as when I decided to get back into school I was living in San Francisco I applied to uh, you know UC San Francisco didn't think it would be that hard and they said "Eh, you don't have any critical thinking you didn't take any classes on critical thinking and when I tell you Mike that I didn't know what critical thinking was. Mm. I was I'm a strategist. I know and I'm I'm a I'm a human behavior junkie. So I know I and I know how to storytell and all of that, but I didn't know that there was such a thing called critical thinking, which is at to your point, empathy, empathy, great, great, great. But let's let's hold that there. It's not gonna go anywhere, Claude's not gonna lose that. Mm. Oh, that's great. Now, as you say, let's start to look at Different ways of thinking about things to find solutions, and by the way, to also potentially cross that bridge, shake hands with that person that I don't really get. But that piece that I just didn't have until I figured out what that was, and then mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I could learn up on it, and I feel like I'm, you know, I I, I graduated a little bit more to the center. <laughs> but to your point, gosh. There is such a thing, I think, as being that empathetic sponge, which does no one any good. And then you can't Mm. really, you can't regulate your way out of anything, you know, their feelings, your feelings, the world's feelings. Um, At least, you know, that's what, that's what sometimes I think the over, an overindulgence, you know, it's a, a, you just, you're a glutton for empathy, just ate too much.
1: Are you open to any feedback?
0: Please, are you kidding?
1: Okay. Uh now this is an audio show, so we're gonna have to do a little narration for this to work. But behind you, above your shoulder, I see three tennis rackets.
0: Yeah, there's more than
1: that, but yes. Oh, lots of tennis. Okay, wow. Tell me why they're arranged that way on the wall. Uh, they're neat. Uh-huh.
0: It's a neat pattern. Uh I like I like the fact that they all lined up. So that mm-hmm. each head of the racket lines up this, you know, in a horizontal way on upside down and right side up and it it makes me feel um i like the history of old sports equipment Mm
2: -hmm.
0: sports equipment Uh, that's the first thing um but it makes me feel a little bit like um it makes me feel content whereas Mm.
1: i'm
0: thinking over here
1: so i was going to ask you about that next
0: which gives me so much joy yes it brings me so much happiness I get lost in the colors and then you see a sunrise up above that.
1: And that was the last thing I was going to ask you about.
0: Yeah. Which, which gives me just the softness. And you know, I want to, I want to sink into that. I literally want to dive through that picture.
1: I have terrible news. You have been lied to.
0: Tell me what
1: you are not right brained. And unfortunately no one is, that doesn't exist. And what, it was a helpful way for people to understand there's two hemispheres of the brain, and I get it. But what I don't like is that you got told something, a story about you that isn't actually true. Because what you just did, you told me you're a strategic thinker, and you're obviously got a holistic view and an artistic sensibility. You have artfully arranged a space that curates a certain emotional timbre to your environment. You understand that relates to your ability to like live and work and be content, right? But to do that, The incredible power of holistic thinking in your left hemisphere employed each and every time it needed the right brain to grab a piece to build the whole that you envisioned. And the fact that you are empathetic is not something that comes from the right brain, it comes from the deep brain. Our brain stem and our limbic system, the ancient. And frankly, most wise parts of our neurobiology do create empathy and do create emotional activation. Now, our neocortex, this more modern layer on the outer part of the brain does deepen emotional experience. It creates complexity beyond that what most life is capable of in our emotional existence. But that's not your right brain. That is the core of your brain that sits right on top of your spinal column. And the problem with modern society is not that, Too many people use their deep brain in their daily lives. And we have too much awareness of our feelings, as you so beautifully call it, our heart. I would argue, and mental health researchers would agree, most of our problems come from too little awareness of deep brain activity, too little connection with our feelings. So I just wanted to reframe that story for just a second. Because what I'm seeing in you is a model to emulate and not a narrative that should be dismissed with a phrase like right brained.
0: Thank you. That's amazing. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I got chills. I mean, I got chills just because you're just so on it. Uh, (laughs) Even the fact that you reframed. You said, you know where your empathy comes from, Claude? You said the deep brain. Before you even went into the core of my spinal cord, mm-hmm. what I took that it was as my soul. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I went with, which mm-hmm. is my deep brain, which is which is in here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Me, it's in it, that's, that's how I took it, not even in the biological sense, but in the all-knowing
1: sense. There's a reason. When we talk about our feelings, we don't do this, but we do this and we do this. If you're listening, I'm tapping my chest and tapping my belly later and tapping my head first. No one says I feel and points to their brain. Why? That soul notion you're talking about, that deepest sense of self. Do you know that we have a part of our nervous system that is not in our brains, that is older than brains called the polyvagal nervous system? And that is primarily the information highway between all the neurons in our bellies. And we have more neurons in our intestines than our dogs have in their skulls. We have, a, we have like a full brain's worth of neurons in our bellies. There's a nerve system that connects to our brains and to our heart and lungs called the polyvagal system. So when our brains coordinate a feeling, it does that in response to activity where? Yeah. In our chest. And in our bellies. Yeah. So it is true. What you're saying is medically and scientifically true. Our felt sense of feeling and our daily experiences, our ears have wiring that go directly to the polyvagal system, bypassing the brain completely. So when someone says something, you know, we have a phrase that says it takes your breath away. Mm-hmm. If someone's tone is sharp, your heart rate changes and your respiration changes faster then your brain can hear and process a word. And so there's this incredible wisdom in our bodies that if we learn to pay attention to and we learn to be in touch with, that's that empathetic skepticism, a deeper sense of body awareness, not to dismiss thought, but deepen our capacity to use thought in a way that is useful and helpful.
0: Which then comes to the fact of like, I feel it in my gut. Mm-hmm. Have a gut feeling that's exactly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you really do yeah, i really do yeah we didn't have that i mean you're not taught that in, you know ninth grade uh i don't know
1: i don't even know what class that would well, be not, it's night all those biological models kind of uh the stuff that's really started in the 40s and 50s and in, in scientific modernism is actually dated now like if we understand In your body's perspective, your thoughts are a brand new beta test software that your body doesn't really trust. Your bodies, if you look back at evolutionary history, bodies created brains to solve problems. So the center of trust in a body is in in the, the chest and in the belly. And then there's older parts of the brain, the limbic system, the brain stem, that are really trusted to solve problems. And then when things seem okay, the body-brain system will kind of say, okay, thinking brain, what do you have? You want to do some long-time troubleshooting? But if we don't feel safe, if we don't feel grounded, or if we're not aware that we're not feeling safe and feeling grounded, our bodies won't actually oxygenate the thinking parts of our brain fully. And we don't even have access to what evolution gave us in those parts unless we have that grounded, connected feeling with our body systems, which is so hard for modern people. And especially for men, you know, our social story, we often tell women they can feel more. And then we we dismiss them because they have feelings because they don't have this, you know, whatever crystallized women are on blah, 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 just a bunch of horse malarkey, right? Just total BS. When in actuality, we, uh, I, I can't help, but notice something when we do put women in positions of leadership in companies, when we finally do that, when we elect women to high offices, they have this balance of actually being able to connect to their emotional core in a way that builds consensus with others and leads to collective problem solving in a way that men often struggle to do because men have been socialized to overemphasize cognition at the expense of emotional and body awareness. And that's bad for everyone. It would have a much healthier society and lower rates of heart disease and lower rates of diabetes and lower overall health care costs if men and women alike were empowered and freed to truly be in touch with their feelings and their body impulses.
0: Jeez. That is exactly what we need to be teaching. Mm Speaking, teaching teaching more, you know, more of you with that megaphone.
1: What? It's just science. Like, I didn't come up with any of this. This is actual, proper medical and scientific research into human people.
0: The way you say it, though, is digestible for mm. someone that not only doesn't understand. I mean, I became afraid of science because mm. I, I didn't find a home. And I didn't feel safe there, you know, to talk. Like, you immediately felt safe in front of that keyboard. Yeah. It was, true. It, it became a second skin. Maybe it became
2: mm-hmm.
0: a way of communicating
2: mm-hmm.
0: a way of communicating has always been here, heart, mm-hmm. chest, gut, and going back to, you know, when my parents would say, you think too much with your heart. Well, yeah.
2: totally. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It's just, it. it's, I, can, I I love this conversation. I have a really big question to ask you. Okay. So. Gonna, I'm going to take a left turn here in Albuquerque. Okay. <laughs> I have never, ever heard of a phrase that spoke to me so much as finding God in the waves. Hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever felt, with the exception of maybe an E.E. E., an e. E. Cummings poem or maybe something in The Alchemist, there's something that rings so true to me about that phrase mm. that title of your book. And I was wondering if maybe you could share a little bit about where you found that title, how it came to you. Are you a surfer? You know, that that's literally where my brain went in a, you know, a lightweight way, but, uh, and you might be a surfer, but I don't think that's the answer.
1: I have surfed twice and both times were disasters. So I'm not a surfer. Um, But, um, a long story, very short, um, as a kid, I was a Baptist Southern Baptist as an adult, I became an atheist. So two polarities. And I had, uh, what scientists would call a mystical experience while standing on a beach at night. (laughs) So I, um, I saw the whole thing. I saw light in the air in front of me. I felt this uh, warmth and safety and love and compassion. There was no words. There was no throne. There was just light and kind of an absence of time and a sense of of a noetic, an unexplainable wisdom that was being shared with me. Hmm. Um, And the closest I could articulate that wisdom is we are all so loved. Mm. And that's it. I don't know how long it was. whether it was 20 seconds or five minutes? It seemed like a long time. And, uh, and then I kind of come back. My feet are wet because the ocean had come up the beach and wet my feet. And I thought, wow, I have brain cancer. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a CAT scan immediately. And I got a CAT scan and yeah. was very disappointed to hear. Yeah, yeah. I really thought yeah. I was like, I went to my neurologist and I'm like, I need a CAT scan. Uh, I have brain cancer. And that's a very specific diagnosis. Why do you think you have brain cancer? I am seeing flashes of light and hearing voices that aren't there. And da 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 da. Okay, yeah, that'll do. MRI, CAT scan, let's do it. And my brain was just fine. No lesions, no tumors, nothing. Well, shoot. So, what happened? So, here I am. I have a a very complex relationship with American Christianity, a lot of baggage. Don't really want to go back to the old world. I have this like non religious way of understanding the world through science that actually serves me pretty well. And I have this experience. So, where is is God anything? And if so, where do we find God? And so that started with the waves of the ocean, but it led to me looking at the waves of uh, brain activity in our minds, um, the waves that you could grasp respiration as an inhale and exhale. If you put that on a graph paper, that's a wave up and down. The ebb and flow of our life circumstances, where kind of that Joseph Campbell hero's journey we have, Things times where things seem well, and then there's some incitement that causes us to grow and change that leads us to pain and disillusionment, but often leads to what? Healing and renewal. And we get this wave up and down. And I sort of look, when I look through all those things at the same time, I start to see like what we describe as God. And um, that's where that book title came from. And uh, I'll tell you, that book came out in 2016. And people buy it every week. I just can't believe that it's still, after all this time, kind of such a steady seller. But uh, it's, it's pretty neat regardless.
0: Yeah, well, it speaks to, I mean, it certainly, it certainly spoke to me. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I just loved it. I loved the title so much. And the first time I saw it, I equated it to um, the founder of Patagonia wrote the book, You know, Let My People Surf. Mm-hmm. and when i lived in san francisco i um i founded and and ran a surfing company wow so uh you know waves wow. of the ocean waves mm-hmm. renewal of, of life even like you know pisces and, and mm-hmm. uh, the psychology and the and the stories of astrology and how we almost started this conversation but that is really beautiful thank you for sharing that and I really, really was looking forward to asking that question. So I'm so glad I got to.
1: (laughs) Me too. Oh,
0: yeah. I have one last question for you for now. And like, I hope it's okay if I come knocking on your door, Mike, because. Let's do it. There's something very special about you. This isn't the question, but that, um, and I think it's a gift. And I I imagine that you're told this, and I, I hope you're told this often, but you make me feel very seen. uh, I really want to thank you for that I I think that as someone that I know I am able to do that with others there's something that happened here in a very short amount of time like you know 40 minutes where I don't know you just made me feel good and you went first
1: (laughs) so that uh that That you think too much with your heart. I'm so glad you do. Because when I joined a Zoom call with someone I've never met, I just immediately felt welcomed and seen and cared for. And so it just made it really easy to reciprocate. That's all.
0: Well, we are mirrors, aren't we?
1: That's right. We
0: are. Um, So I talk a lot about something called emotional optimism. uh, I love it little bit of a backstory there. And then I would, My uh, my question's going to be, what does that mean to you? Um, you, 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 know, this much about me, but I know I have a feeling because of who you are, you probably end up knowing this much about me. <laughs> so once upon a time I was in London, mm-hmm. 12, I lived there. And a friend of mine said, you, I really want to take you to go see me, to, to my, my shaman. Right. So I walk in and um, and I meet this person who looks like a cross between Gandalf and Freud, Austrian accent, a wow. little bit of Britishness, white beard, white hair, taller than tall, right? Like six, seven, you know, I'm five, three. And he, prior to me coming, he asked for my uh, date of birth, you know, he was going to do a chart, I guess, right? Which is cool. I'm open to that. I'm open and I'm pretty much open. I'm going to... I'm a curious person, <laughs> sit down across from him. He has a cat in his lap, and he had my chart, which he had hand-drawn. He looks up, and he looks down. He looks up, and he looks down. And he looks up, and he says, in this Austrian accent, you're the only person that I've ever met that can be inside of a coffin and still see the light.
2: Hmm.
0: And similar to the book title, your book title, that mm-hmm. I, had, I had never, I had, no one had ever expressed my experience of life like that, ever, ever,
2: mm-hmm.
0: ever. And it was so spot on in, time, in, in our next conversations, we can talk about that and, and mm-hmm. our stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that to me summed up emotional optimism. The idea for me that we have trauma, we have pain, we have joy, we have a lot of different feelings and a lot of different circumstances and things happen to us. For me, that is the emotional part. That is being inside of the coffin. Mm -hmm. The ability to see the light for me is the ability to see the hope, the in some way, shape, or form, the silver lining, but the fact that
2: mm-hmm.
0: the sun will come out tomorrow. There will be another chance to rise, to resurrect for renewal, <laughs> for rebirth every single day. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we are going to necessarily escape that. We're not devoid of those feelings. We are those, we are those emotions, but that's not all we are.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'd love to know your, and so that's my kind of take on it and a little story about it, but I'd love to know what that, um, did that conjure up anything to you, just the the phrase emotional optimism?
1: It did, and it conjured a bunch of concerns, and then you assuaged all of them as you spoke. (laughs) Here's why. Um, You know, if you go back 20 years, I would have called myself an emotional optimist. But what I actually was, was a trauma survivor with dissociative tendencies. So I was an optimist by pretending there was no coffin, right? And so then you, and I was like, oh gosh, I hope we are not going to like, yay, dissociation is the way to be. It's fine. as a survival tool. It really is. I wouldn't shame anybody for dissociating. If you dissociate, you do it for a reason. And over time, that survival strategy will stop serving you. Typically, research tells us. But then when you said like the coffin and you acknowledge that we're there and you acknowledge that trauma is real and you acknowledge that feelings are hard and feelings are difficult and we really do face challenges, there was no false or toxic positivity in that emotional optimism. There was simply an awareness that we have the capacity to influence how we think and how we feel, to set framing. To, in cooperation and concert with our whole selves, combine our thoughts and our feelings into new understandings. And uh, I've been trying, I didn't know that phrase, emotional optimism, but I've been trying to learn to be an emotional optimist. It's kind of the journey I lay out in my second book. Um, And... The kind of getting in touch with trauma backgrounds, an increased understanding of the value of emotional intuitive awareness, a deeper emphasis on our social interconnectedness and interdependence. And when we start to combine all those things, despite the difficulty of life, we can find there is also a lightness to it when we just stop trying to control everything so damn hard. And when we stop trying, including our own feelings, we let our feelings be our feelings, but we provide a framing, like kind of as you talked about, the light is actually always there. And I am a suicide survivor. And so I know as well as anyone what it's like to not be able to see the light. And so to me, having just heard the phrase emotional optimism minutes ago, One of the most important disciplines in emotional optimism would be an understanding that at those moments, we cannot see the light. Those are the moments when optimism demands that we reach out a hand for help, for assistance, and for aid so that someone can share that life with us. And then if we feel like, oh my gosh, but I couldn't be a burden, I couldn't be a hassle on someone else. I say this with the deepest lived experience possible. When you reach out for help, when you need it, it actually equips you and strengthens you to offer help to someone else when they need it. And uh, that would be an essential part of a sustainable emotional optimism to me.
0: You are a beautiful human being. That's you very kind. You beautiful human being, and I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I mean yeah. more ways than one, I I see you and I, I really, uh, I'm so glad you're here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. I really mean that. And the thing I want to just end on, aside from just like wanting to give you the biggest hug, <laughs> as you were saying, you know, when we're in those places of hopelessness and you're able to ask for a hand, and then in turn, lend a hand. You have two hands behind you. And that's how we mm-hmm. talk about this today.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You have two models of, you had to put a hand in that glove, didn't you?
1: <laughs> that's right.
0: So, that's, uh, I think you're amazing. And I, I'm so, I'm so, like, I'm a better person because of this 45 minutes. I, I really mean it. And um, mm. thank you.
1: Mm, thank you. I would say the same. And it's been a real honor to meet you today and to spend time with you. And my day has made all the better for it. And my life is made all the better for it. Mine too. Thanks, Mike. Take care.